Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Mark Wu has been interested in sleep for as long as he can remember. Even as a young child, I just loved sleeping. And so I've always enjoyed it and wondered what it was. When he was a Ph.D. student, he was studying fruit flies, and he noticed something that caught his attention. I was a night owl, so I would stay up late at night and look at my flies at 2 in the morning. And I realized that at 2 in the morning, and you probably haven't spent a lot of time looking at flies at 2 in the morning, but they don't move. They just sit there. They're not, normally when you watch a fly, it's flying around, it's walking around, but at 2 in the morning, they're just sitting there, literally all just sitting there. He wondered, were they sleeping or just resting? Once he completed his Ph.D., he went all in on this topic. And they do sleep? Were they sleeping? Yes, they were sleeping, in fact. So if I, if I ever want to kill fruit flies, should I kill them at, at 2 a.m.? Absolutely. <laughs> and I might actually get them. You, might, you, you're, you have a much greater chance of catching them at night. Mark is a neurologist at Johns Hopkins now. So now in my own lab... Uh, I study sleep in fruit flies and in mice. And, of course, I'm also a sleep medicine physician, so I see patients in the clinic that have sleep disorders. And he continues to be completely fascinated with sleep and what its exact role is. Sleep is a behavior that is conserved all throughout evolution, all the way from little fruit flies to human beings. And if you think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to sleep if you think about it. Animals throughout the animal kingdom are spending hours at a time just not moving, unaware of their environment. And when they're in the state, they can't eat, they can't mate, they can't defend themselves. So clearly sleep is important, and it must be doing something important for animals. Sleep is important. We know that because we know what happens when we don't get enough of it. We're exhausted, cranky, moody, forgetful, and our overall health takes a hit. But there are still a lot of mysteries and questions around sleep and why exactly our bodies and brains need it. It's, it really relates to what is the function of sleep. And so the short answer is nobody knows. The longer answer is that scientists are intensely studying this question all around the world and have a bunch of ideas and clues. On today's show, what happens when the need for sleep reaches a crisis level? A unique perspective on sleep positions and a look inside our sleeping brains. Let's start with prioritizing sleep in your life and getting enough rest. Rest often feels like a luxury, like idle time that could be used to do more important things. For a Philadelphia physician, rest seemed out of the question during the early part of the pandemic. It seemed like the world was on fire and this was a time to step up. But she learned an important lesson about the messages our bodies send us and the need to recharge. Nina Feldman has this story. In June of 2020, Shreya Kangovi made this entry in her diary. Saturated, uh, COVID, unrest, I'm sick, I have a helicopter in my brain. The pandemic was in full swing. 
Demonstrations against racism were erupting in the streets of Philadelphia where she lives. And Shreya felt like she was falling apart. Shreya had gotten COVID in April. Two months later, she was still not feeling better. But she felt this was no time to take a break. She had work to do. Shreya works at a health clinic for underserved patients. She also runs a center for community health workers at the University of Pennsylvania. Community health workers help people in their neighborhoods set health goals and then work to achieve them. Their job is to, like, get to know people, figure out what they need in order to improve their health, and then do those things, whether it's battling an eviction notice or planting an urban garden or, you know, getting people good medical care. With so many new questions about COVID and with everyone stuck at home, these services were in high demand. Shreya had to figure out how her team could do the job safely. And she also felt like this moment could be a huge opportunity for her cause to gain wider public recognition. There were bread lines. Uh, there was massive economic insecurity. There was mental health crises. These are the kinds of things that community health workers address. For Shreya, this was not a time to take a step back. So she tried to power through her lingering symptoms. Her hair was falling out. Her sinuses were swollen. She was always exhausted. She felt a constant buzzing restlessness coursing through her body. Her brain was foggy. You know, I always take notes when I'm on calls and things like that, and I realized that I had written in my notebook from the back to the front, which is, like, odd. It's something I've never done. But the single biggest issue plaguing Shreya was her sleep. Well, my sleep felt like dozing on a bus. I would drift off and still be able to trace the thought pattern that I was having before I had fallen asleep. I didn't dream, I just kept thinking. And I would wake up in between these dozes almost with an electric jolt of energy. I was wide awake 20 times a night. In her diary, Shreya drew a diagram of how she imagined her sleep looked. And it was a horizontal line that was broken up by these bright yellow electric jolts um, every hour or two. And I, beneath that, drew a picture of my old sleep. And it was this beautiful <laughs> kind of green ballooning architecture, and I wrote in there, you know, tonight I'm going to have this good sleep. I'm going to dream of walking through the marshes or, you know, these nice dreams that I used to have. This was late April 2020. Everything was remote, so she kept doing Zoom meetings and phone calls. Even though she knew something was wrong, nobody else did. I felt like I was trapped in a snow globe. Long COVID hadn't been identified as a thing yet. So there was nothing for her to point to and say, I have that. She wondered if her symptoms were even real. I also had a one and a two-year-old at the time. And so, you know, when I would complain to friends or family members that I was exhausted, they'd be like, hashtag mom life. You know, this is just what you're supposed to be feeling. This is just what you're supposed to be feeling. Shreya really internalized that. She felt like she had to keep working for her patients. In her mind, if they were suffering... I felt like she could put up with some suffering, too. I have patients that do way more with way harder circumstances. So I would think about, you know, 
my patients and what they've been able to overcome. I mean, I lost a lot of patients to COVID and people who've lost family members and they still take care of their kids and they get out of bed and they take the subway to work. And I was like, I'm doing this, you know, I'm going to do this. Shreya's colleagues say she's always brought this energy to her work. Mary White is a community health worker who's been working with Shreya for more than a decade. She says Shreya doesn't mess around. Her famous saying is, do what you say you're going to do. Don't leave people hanging. You know, follow up with them. Everything is concise. Everything has to be done, you know, like in, uh, I would say, a perfect way, near perfect as you can get, because we're dealing with people's lives. Shreya considers Mary a mentor, but she didn't tell her how sick she was. She didn't even really tell her mom, Sita, who lived nearby in New Jersey. They talked on the phone most days. Sita says sometimes Shreya would complain. She felt tired or not like herself. But next day she'll say, I'm feeling better. I'm feeling better. So, you know, and she was so busy, so crazily busy. She hardly came on the phone even when they did FaceTime the few times. It was always the children, and then she'll say, I have something to do. Because there was no babysitter, no nobody. This went on for months. It wasn't until Shreya and her parents were all vaccinated and could finally see each other in person that Sita realized just how sick her daughter had been all along. I was horrified. She had uh, sunken cheeks. There were deep, uh, dark circles under her eyes. She had lost weight. She's generally a very tough cookie, but uh, she was very ill. Shreya still wasn't sleeping. She knew it was the one thing her body needed to recharge, but it just wouldn't come. And it was starting to change her. She lost her sense of joy. Everything faded to gray. She was becoming delusional. I would see, like, rats scurrying on the floor some days. Like, I almost, it was like an Iditarod-style sleep deprivation so you're or having, having hallucinations. I mean, I didn't, I would just be like, what's that? And I would feel like, was that a mouse? And, you know, nobody else saw the mouse. Shreya says, in a way, she was too tired to rest. That's why I couldn't slow down or stop working, because I was just like, if I, I, I can't sleep, and if I just sit here, like, I'm just going to feel exhausted. So I, you know, I, I just kept going. It was my Dante's circle of hell. <laughs> And then one day, the physical exhaustion pushed her to a point that would have been unthinkable just a few months ago. She called her mom and told her she wanted to quit her job. The quit thing was just like, I think I'm just going to quit. <laughs> you know, it was more of a, okay, I'm just going to die or quit. This was so unlike her daughter that Sita knew she had to intervene. Sita suggested that she and her husband move in to help watch the kids and take care of things around the house. There wasn't room for everyone in Shreya's row house, so she and her husband put their place on the market and bought a bigger home where everyone could fit comfortably. Even after the move, Shreya kept pushing herself. Sita says her daughter's always been this way. I've seen her from childhood. She is deeply affected by social issues of injustice. I remember one incident when she was very young, and in the school bus, uh, some kids were bullying a child who was suffering from asthma. So they uh, took away his inhaler. And Shreya got very mad. She was also a young girl. And so she yelled at them and got the inhaler back to the kid. She came home crying, I want to help all these people. 
Sita saw the same frustration building in her daughter as when she was a little girl. So I kept telling her, honey, you are so weak now. Only if you are strong, you can help and lift others. If you are like this, people, other people have to step in to help you. And you have to take some downtime, let alone humans, even computers need downtime. Sita is a spiritual person and tried to appeal to her daughter using the stories of Hindu saints, which she knows and loves. I told her about um, Raman Maharshi. He's a great saint from India. He always used to say, you know, for individuals to have their own sense of doership is like a passenger sitting in a train with a luggage on his head. The train will take you to the destination. The train will take the luggage to the destination. But you might as well take the load off your head and sit at ease. And so finally, after much hand-wringing and concern that she was abandoning her team, Shreya decided to take a break. Long COVID had been identified by now, so she could name the thing that was happening to her. She announced she was taking a sabbatical from her job. No one had realized how sick she was until she told them. But they weren't mad she was leaving, like she was afraid they would be. If anything, they just wished she'd done it sooner. She had a very hard time, uh, you know, relaxing. She felt very guilty about uh, walking away from her uh, fight. Slowly, very, very slowly, Shreya gave in to rest. By now, it had been almost a year since she'd gotten COVID. First, she started going to the doctor's appointments she hadn't made time for before. She saw a long COVID specialist who asked her to do a memory exercise where she recalled five words he had just listed for her. She could only remember one. He gave her a hint. He said, one of them was a body part. What was it? I still couldn't get it. And he said, was it a face, arm, or leg? And I still couldn't get it. And while I was trying to access that word, I felt this feeling that I had been feeling throughout my day. You know, it was this um, almost a migraine pre-aura. It felt like, this is absurd, but it felt like a soft piece of bread was covering my brain. But yeah, And it was uncomfortable, you know, it was almost like revving a car on neutral. Maybe most importantly, she started seeing Indira Guru Bhagavatula. She's a sleep doctor. To hear that how hard she was trying and powering through on top of what she was actually dealing with, it really it was heartbreaking to watch. Sleep disorders caused by long COVID are new, so doctors don't know much about what causes them. But there are a few theories about what might be going on. For a subset of people, maybe there's lingering virus and they just haven't overcome all of it yet. Another possibility is that the fatigue is caused by an autoimmune response. And it's possible there's crossover between the antibodies that fight the virus uh, with antibodies that then also attack native cells or tissues that are native to your body. So you end up having the sense of achiness or fatigue or exhaustion uh, with that as well. Dr. G and her team created a diagram of Shreya's sleep. It looked remarkably similar to the drawing that Shreya had made herself in her diary. Showed that I was um, having 45 arousals per hour. So, yeah, I was dozing on a bus for a whole year. Dr. G and her team found that a couple of things were happening with Shreya's sleep. 
One was that she was spending too much time in the shallow, transitional phase of sleep and not enough time in the deep, rejuvenating phase. And the other strange thing was that she was sliding back and forth between the phases of sleep way more often than normal. Now, Dr. G was very careful not to draw any firm conclusions from this, but it did give her some clues about what could be going on. She wondered, was it possible that the brain cells that regulate sleep phases had been damaged? This can happen with other sleep disorders, like narcolepsy. In that case, instead of waking up in the middle of the night without warning, people fall asleep suddenly in the middle of the day. Dr. G wondered if something similar was happening here, if the virus, or an autoimmune response, might actually have damaged some cells in Treya's brain that regulate the sleep phases. That completely sounded right to me um, because it just felt like my sleep was unhinged at the seams and it was just popping open every time I had to connect a sleep cycle. The sleep diagram showed that Shreya was finally able to enter into a deep sleep by the early morning hours, starting around 6 a.m. The thing is, that was right when she needed to wake up to take care of her kids. That's why I felt like That's you were going to die. like I was going to die. <laughs> <laughs> but now, with her parents in the house, she could finally sleep in. And so I, if I look back and at my recovery, um, probably the, the single most useful intervention was having my parents watch my kids from like 6 to 8 so I could sleep until 8. Shreya started to sleep more and more. You know how growing up, if you got a bad night's sleep, your parents would always say you needed to catch up the next night? Well, that's what Shreya was doing. Big time. There was a period when she was sleeping 16, 17, 18 hours a day. Dr. G says sleep debt is a real thing. There is a well you can dip into and repay later. But she says you can't live on borrowed sleep forever. At a certain point, you do max out. Shreya thinks she came really, really close to that point. I think if I hadn't taken time off, somehow I think I'm, I would have died. <laughs> like There's this one yoga pose called Shavasana, which is like the corpse pose. And I would just be like, I'm very close to this. Like, I feel, I feel very close to death. And actually, feeling this close to death made a profound change on Shreya. It's kind of this stabilizing thing. You know, in America, we don't talk, we don't like to talk about death a lot. But like, you know, in Hinduism and Buddhism, you talk about death all the time. Like, it's the obvious, it's the only certainty with her time off, she let her mind wander. She relinquished control. That's very unusual for me, you know, because I'm always like, okay, here's the next thing, and here's the next thing, and here's the next thing. And I just, it was a very different, spacious feeling. Did your mind being sort of allowed to just meander, did it take you anywhere new or unexpected? No, it didn't. And in fact, it allowed me to get less caught up in my thoughts. It's just like your thoughts just wander and you're like, there's something deeper than your thoughts because they're just wandering. And yet there's this grounded feeling underneath of them. She spent time reading the Gita, one of the holy scriptures of Hinduism. She did yoga and paged through the history books of ancient Hindu art. I saw this picture of um, a sculpture of a man in a yoga pose from India and he's in, you know, the lotus posture but his arms are made of, like, a fish bone or something, like a little bone. And the caption said, third millennia B.C. Like, third millennium B.C. 
And there's just, there's civilizations beneath our feet, like six feet under us. There are people who have fought the fight and struggled and, and I'm like marching through my day, like all pissed and righteous about the thing that I'm doing right now. And I was like, that's stupid. I had previously been equating, you know, um, being angry and suffering, my own suffering, with, like, leveling the playing field with my patients. Like, I wanted to suffer as much as they were suffering. And, like, I just was very privileged and lucky. So, like, my suffering was going to come from just beating myself up over, you know, getting the work done. She was starting to realize that suffering for suffering's sake wasn't getting her anywhere. This is what her mom had been trying to tell her. Don't worry about all the darkness in the world. You just light your own candle and move ahead. Shreya's back at work now. She wouldn't say she's fully recovered. She still has bad days, bad weeks. But she's calmer, more balanced. Her mom says so too, and so does Mary, her mentor. During the pandemic, the country didn't turn its healthcare system inside out to embrace community health workers as the new model for medicine. But when Treya went on sabbatical, the community health workers on her team did just fine. In fact, they thrived. She was proud of them. She was humbled. It was the reminder she needed that the world can go on without her. It always has. That was Nina Feldman reporting. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about rest and sleep. When you wake up with aches and pains, the first thought often is, I need a new mattress, a new pillow, maybe one of those foam mattress toppers or a whole new bed. But what if our investments in ever more comfortable bedding were misguided and the answer to a better night's sleep was a lot more simple? Jad Lehman got interested in how we sleep, and he stumbled across a science paper from two decades ago that offers a surprising perspective. It was the very first line in this paper that grabbed my attention right away. If you are a medical professional and have been trained in a civilized country, you probably know next to nothing about the primate Homo sapiens and how they survive in the wild. FYI, science papers don't typically open up by saying not for nothing. All of you are clueless. But that's how Michael Tetley, physiotherapist, opened up what seemed to be his first and only published paper on sleep and sleeping positions. He goes on to tell an incredible story. Talks about growing up with tribal people in Africa, leading local troops into war in the 50s and undertaking some 14 expeditions all over the world. And how all this taught him one thing. The peoples of the Western developed world, us, we were sleeping wrong. 
We were sleeping in positions and on beds and pillows that cause us injury. And the answers to the myriad back and neck pains of middle and late adulthood can be found in nature and in sleep. The paper makes an argument that the best all-around position for sleep is something like this. On your side with one leg over top the other, and instead of a pillow, your head rests in the crook of your arm. The pictures in the paper are perhaps the most striking part. A gray-haired man in his underwear sleeping in different positions, some that look more at home in a yoga studio than a bedroom. That man is Michael Tetley himself. The paper explains he's demonstrating sleeping positions taught to him by people in pre-industrial societies who were averse to having their picture taken. I wanted to talk to Michael, but he looked like a grandfather in these photos, and the paper was published 20 years ago. I really wasn't sure he was still alive. Uh, good afternoon to you. Where are you speaking to me from? From St. Albans, which is 18 miles north of London. Turns out Michael was still with us. He's 91 years old, and he's still a practicing physiotherapist. Show me another animal in the world that retires. Do you, so you still see patients in office? Yes, seen some today already. Michael hasn't slept on what most of us would consider a proper bed in decades. I can sleep on concrete still now. <laughs> His bed is closer to a Japanese futon, five layers of compressed cotton, no pillow. He lives in England but sleeps the way he was taught to during a war I hadn't even heard of that raged back in Kenya where he was born. The first surprise I got when I found Michael is just the fact that he's still around and working. The second was that all these expeditions he mounted, all his sleep research, he did it all completely blind. He had lost his sight to a bullet when he was 23 and a British Army officer. Seven terrorists um, shot me and then tried to come and cut me up into little pieces. One of Michael's African soldiers stood over him and shot all seven. If I hadn't been with him, I'd been dead and cut up to pieces by now. The people he calls terrorists, others might call them freedom fighters. They were known in their day as the Mau Mau, a secretive militant group whose legacy is controversial even now in Kenya. The Mau Mau uprising sought an end to English colonial rule in the 50s. Michael was born in Nairobi to English parents, and he spoke local languages, which made him useful to the British military. There were the gun-toting human threats. Then there were the non-human ones. When you uh, imagine Kenya nearly 100 years ago, it's completely different. If you're out in the bush and you've got to sleep on the ground, the last thing you want to do is put your head in a pillow because you can't hear the lions and the hyenas coming. And an awful lot of people in Wajir Hospital at one time, there were more beds filled with lion and hyena bite than malaria. So if you're out in the bush, you want all your senses slightly awake all the time. And so if you lie on your side with a crooked arm, your lower ear isn't blocked, is it? So you can hear anything coming. Michael says the African soldiers slept differently than their European counterparts, perfectly comfortable on the hard ground, not a pillow in sight. And the first time I saw them sleeping on the ground in this position, I thought, well, I can't do that. But by the time I'd been with them several months, I was doing exactly the same thing. Sleeping this way, on your side, head in the crook of your arm, seemed at first something you'd do just out of necessity. There's no beds out here, and you can't afford to block your hearing with a pillow in case some predator comes by. But Michael noticed, eventually, that it seemed to have all these other benefits. My African troops, because uh, I was the only white man um, amongst them, they never seemed to suffer with 
back problems and shoulder problems like the British troops that we were alongside us. And that made me start wondering, what is it that they're doing that's different from what I was brought up with? Something about the way his troops slept stuck with Michael for years after the Kenya campaign. After losing his sight, he had gone to England, and after despairing for some while on what he'd do now, his father advised him to learn physiotherapy, saying that it's all stretching, right? You don't really need to see. That's what Michael did, and complementing what he learned in his modern clinical training, he started to apply lessons from his time in the African bush to help clients heal themselves, changing the way they slept to alleviate pain. And as it turned out, the bullet that ended Michael's military career would do nothing to blunt his adventuring. I've been ever so lucky. I've done. If you'd asked me the things that I've done since I've been blind, you, I'd never believed you. Michael has easily filled several bucket lists since losing his sight. He's climbed Mount Everest, rode a canoe with cannibals, pedaled a tandem bicycle some 500 miles across Kenya with a sighted partner guide, once outrunning a herd of elephants along the way. And suddenly I heard my friend say, for Christ's sake, pedal like hell. And I pedaled and I pedaled and I pedaled. And I said, is it all right now? And he said, no. For Christ's sake, shut up and pedal. And we were weaving in and out between the elephants. And you could hear their tummies rumbling. We were so close. I'm surprised no one's made a movie about this guy. But this wasn't all for fun or kicks. There was always the research. Research he funded himself through his successful practice. He liked it that way because it kept him independent, able to take risks and follow his curiosity. He asked everyone he met the same question. How is it that you sleep? I'd ask them what put themselves in a position that they would normally sleep in, and then I'd uh, have a quick feel what they were doing. He used his hands to get a sense of their positions, where their legs were, their arms, their head. Sometimes you have to be very careful, particularly if you ask the ladies what they, sleeping positions they put themselves into, they think this bloke's after something else. He met Somali people that sleep with a tiny stool under their heads. Which is 10 inches wide and 7 inches high, like a tea piece. And they put their head on that, so it keeps the head out of the out of the sand. And they sleep on that all the time. I've tried that, but I, I don't find that particularly comfortable, but at least you haven't got sand in your face. In China, he found some that slept on pillows made with bits of rock-hard shining jade. And I thought it's going to be very uncomfortable sleeping on, on jade, you know, which is a hard stone, but it's very comfortable. And because the buttons are really close to each other, air circulates underneath it, and you, you keeps your head cool. In Michael's mind, these were all sleeping positions adapted to and governed by nature, as opposed to a department store mattress and pillow set. I think nature expects you to hurt every joint of your body sometime every day, and it corrects it every night before, when you're asleep. And when you sleep on a firm mattress, you've got to breathe, which means the ribs have got to move. And if the ribs can't move, the forest floor, for example, it kicks back against the spine and it resets the spine every day and ready for the next day. And so, as I say, I've been lucky because the African troops taught me an awful lot because they were, they, were, they were driven by their instinct rather than by what people think you should do. So what was the response to all this when Michael published his paper 20 years ago, all these alternatives to how most of us sleep? The British doctors thought I was crackers. That's UK slang for they thought he was nuts. But I got emails from all over the world from other doctors that had been trained in England but had gone around to the rest of the world and said, it's about time somebody pointed this out to them. 
people who haven't been around the world and knocked around the world at all, they're, I, they're just parochial, aren't they? And because they go from England here, they go to a, when they think they go abroad, they go from one first-class hotel to another first-class hotel. But come with me into the bush and it'll be a different story. I wondered how researchers would react to Michael's paper now, in 2022. Science changes all the time. Old knowledge becomes new again. Ideas come in and out of fashion. I sent out some emails. Medical centers, physical therapy practices, and universities. I expected, quite honestly, not much of any response. Instead, it turned out that the very first line of Michael's paper, the one that said modern Western science was clueless about this stuff, it actually wasn't that far off the mark. There really was almost no research on sleep posture and pain. Scoping review, we found that there's only four papers out there, one of which was one of our ones already, that actually addressed this question, which was specific to us, which was looking at the relationships between sleep posture and waking spinal symptoms. That's Australian physiotherapist Doug Carey. It seems such a basic question. Like, were you surprised <laughs> that like no one had been looking into this? Absolutely. I was surprised nine years before I started. Like, you know, there's so much anecdotal. You just have to type in, you know, anything on Google and there's a bunch of anecdotal information comes back to you. Don't, don't do this and don't do that. And there's even heaps of video blogs saying, oh, you should be doing this and you should be doing that. But the reality is there's no evidence backing up, you know, any of those sort of assumptions. Doug studied how people slept in their own homes using infrared cameras. And what he found to be the position associated with least pain actually lined up pretty well to the way Michael's soldiers taught him to sleep all those years ago. On the side, legs, one on top of the other. But Doug's subjects, of course, used pillows instead of their arms. Doug thinks we humans kind of find our way to this position as we age. He calls it side-lying. From a young age, say five or six, we spend about the same amount of time in each of the sleep positions, on your back, on your front, and on your side. But as people get older and they move into their 40s and 50s, they start to spend more and more time inside lying. And that was the interesting thing that we found. And they also have longer periods of time inside lying. So that was also leading us to that thought process. Well, okay, as we get older, if we're getting so-called smarter about what we do based upon feedback from our body, we do spend more time on our side. Learning all this has influenced how Doug treats his patients, led to a kind of less is more attitude. Instead of pushing and pulling on his patients, he gives them simple sleep instructions. Try lying on your side. And then he just waits for his advice to work. To his patients' astonishment, it often does. They almost look at you and go, you're kidding me. Is it that easy? Look, hindsight is worth a million dollars. (laughs) And this person's had pain for five or 10 or 15 years. And they might have spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and just been really um, unimpressed with the medical system generally. And they make this small change and they come back in two weeks and it might be a chocolate cake or it might be a bunch of flowers. They're just (laughs) over the moon because, you know, for the first time they've actually realised what's the the cause of the problem. And it's very simple. They can change it themselves. They don't need intervention. I also sent Michael Tetley's paper on sleep positions and beds and pillows to a big-shot spinal surgeon here in Philadelphia, thinking, well, if anyone's going to be skeptical of all this, it's going to be a medical doctor who actually repairs human spines using the most cutting-edge surgical techniques. I just, you know, it's funny. I got this email, and I was like, 
that is the coolest thing in the world. Jim Harrop was more blown away by the paper than even I was. He asked for Michael's email and sent off a flurry of questions, even a picture of his dog sleeping in a curiously human way, trying to pick his brain. Jim had been trying to figure out pillows, whether they had some kind of effect on neck pain, and he hadn't been finding much. In fact, again, just like Doug, he tells me there really isn't that much out there. We don't totally understand the cervical spine. We don't understand the pain developed from the spine. And when someone someone comes and says, hey, have you thought about that? And to be honest with you, I, I never really did. Jim was trying to figure out which pillow might alleviate pain. And here, Michael was saying, well, don't use one at all. Jim doesn't know if that's correct or not, but he says when we know so little, we can't shut down ideas. You know, I am so lucky. I have zero neck pain. Never had it in my life. And, and so, you know, do I, am I doing something right or are they doing something wrong? I mean, we don't have the basic understanding of anything right now. It's worth keeping an open mind about this stuff, the possibility of a different way of sleeping, correcting spinal issues, because the alternative surgery is kind of a devil's bargain. Jim says evidence of trade-offs for given surgical procedures mounts year after year. Fix something in one part of the spine, it creates a problem in another. Strain it with a rod along one axis, as with scoliosis treatment, and you lose the natural curve of another axis. And what we found is your spine and your posture is more complex than you would believe. The main issue is the spine is a moving organ. It twists and bends and turns constantly in three dimensions. What you repair one day could lead to another problem in a different part of the spine. So Jim is a surgeon who absolutely, positively doesn't want to do surgery. The idea of fixing a spine without going under the knife, of literally doing it in your sleep, it's an idea worth exploring. Jim's reached out to Michael and tells me that the two of them will talk shop. Jim is going to continue his pillow research, and he says it's already being informed by what he's learned from Michael. I will tell you, I have a couple questions. I'm, going to, I'm making up this survey, and I've been doing it. And I added a couple questions just specifically of, do you sleep with a pillow? Do you sleep on which side? So perhaps Michael's first sleep study paper, published some 20 years ago, won't be the last one published with his name on it. For The Pulse, I'm Jad Slayman. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, what exactly is going on in the brain while we sleep? Here's one idea. The very simple headline is that the brain flushes itself during sleep. That's next on The Pulse. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about sleep. When we don't get enough of it, our health takes a serious hit. I talked about that with Mark Wu. He is a professor of neurology at Johns Hopkins, and he's also a sleep physician. There are large-scale epidemiological studies and also experimental studies, both done in animals and in humans, that suggest that when you don't sleep, our body's metabolism is impaired. There's strong associations between lack of sleep and things like obesity 
diabetes, and what clinicians call metabolic syndrome, which is the syndrome where you have obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, and high cholesterol. It's been shown even that if you take humans and you sleep deprive them just one night, that their body actually acts almost like it's pre-diabetic, that it processes sugar in a, a more impaired way. He told me that sleep is also essential for our brains to function. And the argument for that is that, you know, if you were just to lay in bed and not move, but still be conscious, you would feel the need for sleep the next day. When we're asleep, there's a lot going on in our brains. Electrical activity. The sleeping brain is not an inactive brain, is not a quiescent brain. Researchers have a good idea of what happens during the different phases of sleep, like rapid eye movement, REM sleep. Where the electrical activity of the brain looks just like wakefulness. And also, as the name implies, your eyes are moving back and forth. And during that stage, the brain is often actively vividly dreaming. Or when we're in a deep sleep. During deep sleep, the brain has synchronized waves of electrical activity that go up and down and are basically these big, it's called slow waves. And that's called slow wave and deep sleep. But why is all of this happening? What's the purpose of these different phases that allow us to wake up, hopefully feeling fresh and rejuvenated? Mark says one new idea that's being investigated is that the brain is clearing out waste during sleep. There are these tunnels that are adjacent to penetrating blood vessels in the brain. And these tunnels have cerebral spinal fluid flow across it to kind of wash, essentially, the brain. And that this flow is increased during slow-wave sleep. And there's experimental data both in animal models and in human imaging studies that suggest that this appears to be the case. Having said this, this is a very active area of research, and there are some scientists that argue that this system does not work, and so it's being actively studied. So this, this would suggest that the brain is sort of getting flushed at night? <laughs> Exactly. So that's kind of the, uh, the very simple headline, is that the brain flushes itself during sleep. And therefore leads to the idea that the reason we need to sleep is to remove toxins. And if you don't remove toxins and metabolic waste, then that's bad for the brain. So if we talk about the metabolic waste, where does that come from? That comes from neurons. So it turns out that all cells in your body have to use energy. And when they use energy, they make byproducts, waste essentially, whether it's things like lactic acid or other substances. And the thing that's interesting about the brain is it is one of the most energetically intense organs in the body. What is the thinking right now in terms of, you know, we all know that when we don't get adequate sleep, our brains are not functioning right. We forget things, our mood changes, sometimes we even see things that aren't there. What is the current explanation of why that is happening? So that kind of relates to a couple of questions. So first is what happens um, in the short term if you don't get sleep? And what happens is that at a cognitive level, we lose the ability to focus or have attention. And so attention is kind of the 
fundamental building block of all cognitive processes. If you imagine cognition to be a pyramid, what we call attention is kind of the base level. If you can't attend, then essentially, arguably, all cognitive functions can be impaired. You're slower at, you know, reasoning. You're having a harder time with recalling things, with memory. And so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about short-term sleep loss. When we're talking about long-term sleep loss, I think it's it gets into other ideas. And what, besides this idea of waste clearance that we've been talking about, I also want to bring up an other important idea, which is the idea of decrease in neuronal activity during sleep. So I've, I had first said that the sleeping brain is not completely inactive, and that's true. However, if you compare at energy consumption or of the brain during sleep versus during wakefulness, it's actually reduced by about 30% or so. So another function of sleep may be to reduce overall neuronal activity. And so when you don't sleep, you might end up with increased neuronal activity over time. Another idea is that sleep is important for neuroplasticity. This is the process by which neurons rewire themselves or change the strength of the connections between neurons. Um, and this forms the basis for things like learning and memory. So one of the interesting things is that it turns out that in all animals throughout the animal kingdom, baby animals sleep a lot. We all have experiences of our own babies, you know, sleeping 16 or 14 hours a day um, and, and in a very deep way. Um, but it turns out that fruit flies and mice and all these animals do that too. And the question is why? And the answer may be that these baby animals and baby humans are doing a lot of wiring of their brain, and sleep may be important for that wiring. Yeah, and I guess during the time when they are awake, their brain is sort of in overdrive, learning so many new things. Exactly, and that's, that's another idea out there, which is called the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis, and this has been promoted by Giulia Tononi and Cara Sorelli, and they argue the purpose, the main purpose of sleep is to downscale things because as you're walking, like you just said, when you're walking around or you're getting all this visual input and auditory input, your brain is in overdrive. It's learning things. It's strengthening connections. But you can't do that forever. And you also want to shape and fine-tune those connections. And they argue that is what the, the important role of slow-wave sleep is for. Which is, it's also like you don't have any external input during sleep, right? And I'm wondering if on some level, because your eyes are closed and you're not like taking in new information, I'm wondering if that on some level also just gives your brain a chance to <laughs> to digest everything that, that you've ingested over the day. I think that's a really good point. And I think that, um, in fact, my sort of my own personal view, and this is a kind of a, a very vague idea. But the idea is that sleep is required for the brain to do what it cannot do during wakefulness. So imagine a car that's driving down the, the road. You can't do certain things to the car when it's driving. You know, if you want to fix or adjust certain things, you have to stop the car. And then you can kind of like look under the hood or, you know, fix various things. And so I, I kind of think that that is what sleep is ultimately about. You have to, as you said, turn off everything, you know disconnect from the environment. And then maybe, for example, you know, during wakefulness, you've moved your receptors around in a, in a cell and that might need to be replaced or you know, reset. The cell might need to be reset. And 
So I think that it's a, you know, it's a very interesting point you make, and it isn't exactly what scientists are thinking, um, but exactly what it is still remains to be discovered. Mark Wu is a professor of neurology, and he's a sleep medicine physician at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Jad Slayman. Sojourner Ahebe is our health equity fellow. Our intern is Meredith Haas. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Nicole Curry is our associate producer. Lindsay Lazarski is our producer. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. News is a public service. That's why NPR never puts a paywall in front of our journalism. NPR.org, our free website, promises to stay that way so that you get all of it. Breaking news, pop culture, award-winning journalism, wherever you are. To stay connected, head to NPR.org. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today.